0: All right. Hello, everyone. So we're back at um, another episode of Sensibly Curious About Vaccines. And I'm uh, Tracy Hu, and this is my co-host, um, Christine Stableben. Um, and we have two guests today that I'm so excited about. Um, and I'm going to introduce them. Uh, I I actually, I, I'll probably start with RETZEF because I met RETZEF in person, um, I guess about a year was it, a year and a half ago.
1: Um, yeah, two like years
0: ago, almost two years ago, in Washington D.C. at the Academy of Science and Freedom, at actually at Hillsdale College um, conference, and um, so Retsef, um, I should probably introduce the episode by by actually saying that we're going to be talking about uh, a pretty hot topic uh, at the moment, which is how the Um, We're going to be specifically looking at the Pfizer um, vaccine um, and how um, it was tested in the original clinical trial um, using something called process one. um, uh, So manufacturing practices and then how uh, at the very end of that clinical trial, um, the manufacturing process got switched to process two. And that was not actually thoroughly tested. It was not tested in more than more than 252 subjects out of the over 21,000 that initially received the vaccine in the original Pfizer clinical trial. And we're going to talk about um, what that means about uh, sort of what we do and don't know about the safety and efficacy um, of the Pfizer vaccine um, based on the limited data that we got from the initial clinical trial. And then I think we're going to be talking about like how this happened, why it happened, what uh, what Pfizer knew when, what uh, the EMA and FDA and our regulators knew when, um, and um, what it means um, for for us, for for people who are vaccinated, for the people who we know were vaccinated, for uh, the future of vaccine safety. So um so to get back to introducing our guest so Reza uh, Levy so he, uh, I hope I said that right so he is um originally from Israel um as far as I understand and he um originally studied mathematics um, at Tel Aviv University and then went to Cornell um to study um research operations and now operations he's research. a professor mm-hmm. operations research sorry and then you're a professor of operations management of M- at MIT right now mm-hmm. and um i think actually if i remember correctly you got interested in studying vaccines um after covid started is that correct is that kind of when you got or was it so, before
1: so i was actually actively uh, studying um, the, you know, uh, issues related to uh, safety and quality of um, manufacturing of biologic drugs or biologic drugs, more more generally speaking. And I've been having uh, multiple uh, contracts and awards from the FDA, still, still uh, do. Uh, and um, also, more generally speaking, um, my research uh, has a lot to do with the intersection of data and analytics and advanced analytics and how you use that to inform Um, the design and operations of complex systems. So I've been working a lot with hospitals and health systems. So basically, almost from the start of my academic career, I've been looking on uh, health-related data from large health systems, from uh, manufacturing environments uh, of biologic drugs. And of course, when COVID started, um, it actually um, was related not only to the clinical aspects or the health aspects of my research, because other parts of my research are about logistic operations risk management um, which had a lot of aspects re- relevant to that as well in terms of how you manage uh, the pandemic uh, risks and how do you protect for example nursing homes and uh, and uh, things like that um, but uh, definitely over the last uh, uh, three years I've learned much more uh, much more about biology and uh, Im- immunology and other aspects that uh, maybe I I didn't know about a uh, whole lot about. Before, but to some extent, operations research is exactly about the ability to use analytical tools and modeling tools in different domains. And uh, you usually work with the subject matter experts, and you learn uh, the topics, and and you bring the the perspective of data and and, and modeling analytics to and to assess risk, to uh, understand how you can optimize systems, and so forth. So that's kind of that's kind of my angle where I'm coming to these topics. So.
0: Got it. Yes. And we'll, we'll, um, and I should say that listeners will actually probably know you from, um, maybe best from your research, looking at, um, uh, ambulance, um, calls in Israel mm-hmm. related to the vaccine rollout. Um, I don't know, do you want to, and, 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 and cardiac deaths as well, related to the, the vaccine rollout. Do you yeah, want so, to so yeah. talk? About-
1: yeah. So once, um. Uh- once the issues uh, related to myocarditis and pericarditis uh, emerge in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines, but o- not only, also in the context of the COVID um, uh, illness, um, you know, I started to read about this, and and one of the first things that you learn about myocarditis is that it has a lot of uh, subclinical um, uh, 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 cases on top of the clinical cases. And uh, that also, that it's, a, it's a known cause of sudden uh, cardiac death out of hospitals, um, especially among young people. And when, when I started reading about this, I said, okay, so if that's the case, these are signals that the current civilian systems are not likely to detect because uh, it's out of the hospital. So, you know, many of these cases will happen um, you know in in settings that may not be kind of uh, easily detectable and and then kind of the idea of okay let's just look on what happens with EMS calls and i was able to connect with um senior vp to for research in the national EMS organization in israel israel is a country where there's only one EMS unlike the us uh, where it's city by city um and and we 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 started to look on the um temporal patterns over a course of two years. and and we indeed saw a major increase among young people sixteen to thirty nine of the cardiac arrest uh, EMS calls. Um, and uh, when we looked on the temporal correlations, we uh, when we compared it, because we don't have individual data, unfortunately, we only have aggregated data. We were able to detect the temporal correlation with the number of doses that were given to these ages. Um, and we didn't see the same correlation uh, for COVID-19 infections, uh, which, to be honest, I don't think our paper, the, the, the major uh, contribution of our paper was to raise the signal that there is a correlation that needs to be checked more thoroughly and more kind of carefully to, to see whether that, that is a plausible uh, uh, risk. I think since then, uh, although the paper was attacked uh, viciously, um, by uh, people that didn't like the, the even the idea that there is potential risk, but now by, by now we know that this is not a theoretical scenario. There are multiple papers, including autopsy-based, uh, that show that uh, it is a real risk. But unfortunately, still uh, in Israel and other places, I don't think that um, um, people were able to basically bring together EMS calls with individual-level data on vaccination status and infection status to to do a thorough job of, on on understanding that type of risk, but to me it kind of showed that uh, when we look on on uh, surveillance of, of uh, in the context of safety of drugs, we need to incorporate all sources sources of data, including uh, what is happening out of, out of the hospital, because that's kind of uh, these are incidents that are not likely to be detected by the regular from uh, uh, pharma. pharma, pharma so uh, uh, surveillance uh, systems that we can have
2: let's have f- am i right that you 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 took your findings to to people at the ministry of health
1: yeah and also the fda uh, as well so uh, and what was the unfortunately- reaction the reaction was that they don't see any increase whatsoever in cardiac uh, uh, cardiac related defense which by now we know it's not true in fact in in another data that i still did not write the paper on but we analyzed it uh, we we received um, from the two hmos the large hmo in israel the healthcare system is organized uh, through multiple uh, hmo healthcare maintenance organizations that basically have longitude are responsible for longitude care of decades of of a large population so we we got the from two HMOs that are responsible for over six million people in Israel, uh, data about pulmonary embolism cases, uh, diagnosis, and yet again you see uh, a major increase in 2021 in all age groups uh, of this diagnosis. This is this is actually in, including the cl- the clinic diagnosis, not only uh, not only not not out of the hospital uh, uh, diagnosis, but the point is again on pulmonary embolism that it can cause uh, sudden death in fact sometimes it's being confused with cardiac arrest it's hard to distinguish them um, and, and we see the increase including in ages four, 0 to 29 major increase like 17% uh, so, so I think I think that the Ministry of Health in Israel was not very um, uh, forthcoming to, to say the least to to do this investigation in fact uh, they declared in social media that that they are going to try to ret- uh, cause our paper to be retracted. So uh, uh, they even threaten us in, in in social media that that's what they're going to do. Um, so you know, I, I'm I'm not I'm pretty sure that by now it's not that surprising the story that I tell now about the reaction to what we found. Unfortunately, um, I think that once. Healthcare, healthcare regulatory agencies decided to give this vaccine to all ages, including young people that are not uh, high risk. They committed themselves to a path that they cannot admit any wrong, and I think that we see the, the, the reason why we see this great level of denial and and uh, efforts to suppress any any attempt to understand what what the risks are, um, in spite of mounting signals. Uh, is 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 because they are so committed? Like, what are they going to say now uh, if there is a real signal that will will harm or potentially harm young individuals or children that have zero risk from COVID? Uh, it's going to be very hard to rationalize this. Uh, I think if they just were limited to the high risk population, even if retrospectively that would turn out to be not the best decision, you, it would be a legitimate decision because under the uncertainty at the end of 2020, you know that would be reasonable to make a decision like that but unfortunately they didn't do that and i think that that's kind of the key reason why i think we are facing uh, a lot of the resistance to investigate anything
0: i think that's so important and and one of the reasons that i i think podcasts like like this are so important too is to you know, talk about our experiences, researchers, and you know now, like you correctly stated, your your findings have been validated in different ways by different re- research groups, like by the autopsy findings in the um, Korean study. Um, And by the work in the UK, the epidemiological work, um, the self-control case series that they did finding increased risk of cardiac death um, in young males as well. And you found it in males and females. And I would say like the the Nordic study found a higher risk of myocarditis after COVID or after, sorry, the the COVID vaccines than after COVID-19. Um, by a lot in males and females who are, who are young, 16 to 24. And they basically found in in young people, especially in children, they couldn't find any COVID myocarditis. And so it's just, it's interesting how, you know, I I feel like multiple research groups, you know, ended up finding a similar thing, but I'm sure sure that there were other, there have also been many groups that haven't been able to get their findings published and they face pushback. That you did that I, you I, didn't. I
1: um,
0: yeah. let me put it this way the,
1: well. the, the the sagas around the paper that we just talked about is a, is a could be a podcast by itself but just to add on what you right. said there are also two prospective studies in which people tested the the, the hearts of uh young um uh, people that got the vaccines one from Thailand one from Switzerland and in which you see um, two three percent which is a Dramatic number of people the that have increased troponin, right? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, even if not subclinical, like increased troponin, which is an indication of heart damage, heart muscle damage. And there's a, even a more recent study in which they actually find the mRNA in the hearts of people that died uh, yeah. uh, shortly after the vaccine. So, I uh, I always say, and maybe here I'm bringing my intelligence uh, hat because I I spent in Israel uh, before coming to academia. I spent 12 years in almost 12 years in intelligence. Often we tend to see, oh, this indication maybe doesn't prove it, and that indication that that does, or that finding, but you have to step back at some point and look on the mounting evidence and just like say, hey, it, something be- is is wrong here. It, it cannot be that we see so many signals uh that all speaks to the all speak to the same kind of direction that there is a major cardio cardiovascular impact especially on young people and we have to ask yourself very tough questions why would you want to take such a risk where where the risk from the illness is clearly i mean I, i don't want to say zero but it's very close to zero especially with the current variants so
0: yeah, well, um, and and I think it's 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 good that we we introduce ourselves too like this because I think it's important to know we're we're just all like not conspiracy theorists we're you know all researchers scientists <clears throat> um, I was understanding from Josh I think we may even have sort of a similar background in a way I I don't know but well so you're you're originally from California. And you, um, so you studied sociology. You, you studied, let me let me get this right. So you went to UC Berkeley um, for your undergrad and you studied sociology and then you went to Princeton for your PhD. Um, and now you're at Hebrew University. And I, I kind of said we have a similar background because I'm, I'm from the US as well. And I actually think we like, graduated college the same year. And, um, oh, and wow. then I ended okay. up moving to Denmark. Um, to and uh, To Denmark. Oh, okay. Um after after I did my MD I did my PhD at the University of Copenhagen. Oh, wow. Um okay. and and so like I think we both have this the experience of like growing up in the United States and then moving abroad um and studying in two different countries and I I think that that actually brings a lot of critical thinking skills and I think Retsev sort of has the same but like the opposite he started in 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 Israel and moved to the United States and I think once you see that, you know, different countries kind of do things very different ways and have different, um, uh, what's the word, they have different um, customs and and things that they take for granted that they just do without thinking about them. And that was definitely the case when I moved to Denmark, that so many things in medicine were done differently, Mm. such as I've been talking about with Christine a lot, that like the vaccines that were given in Denmark were like just, you know, about a third of what were, was given in the, in, in the United States. And, and, and just that alone made me pause as well as the fact that there are no vaccine mandates. And so I, I'm just bringing up one example, but there are so many examples. And so it makes you kind of take a step back and think, wait a minute, you know, are the things that we do really based in science
2: right? Um,
0: or, or, or are we just doing them because people around us do them but but so I so I'm I'm talking too much but I would love to hear Josh like how how did you get interested in studying vaccines and I should say you're a lecturer now at Hebrew University in criminology right
2: criminology and sociology yes that's correct
0: and sociology okay
2: which is equivalent to a a professor I'm I'm an associate professor yeah yeah that's the 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 corollary to the U.S. that's right
0: associate professor and
2: yeah these early
1: names are slightly different so
2: right um my uh, name
0: is josh right. i didn't even say that yet that's yeah, oh that's to get fine in there.
2: that's fine <laughs> and, and and if you want to talk about my bona fides you you skipped over the the postdoc i did at harvard in uh, health policy that's right. um and sorry, you know and so people don't really understand what sociology is or what sociologists do but you know i have advanced statistical training at the um demography institute the office of population research at at princeton uh, and uh, the woodrow wilson school of public affairs and in the department of sociology and you know all of these methods are pretty much similar across domains so i have a good understanding of, of research methodology and statistics um so i got interested in this actually in 2019 when a um uh, if you are you guys familiar with the book um Uh, turtles all the way down you heard this this book that's this is a book i've heard of it okay so this was a book that was written in this, this was a book that was written um in hebrew actually um i think in 2017 and the the authors of the book uh they it was written anonymously okay now you read the book you realize that this is some these are people who seem to have some kind of background in medicine or something like that these are you know qualified people, but why would you have to feel the need to write this book anonymously? And the reason is because they were worried for their careers and the, and the pushback that they would get because this is a book very critical of vaccine safety. And um, a, a Criminology, uh, two colleagues of mine in Criminology wrote a book review of this that was published in the Journal of the Israeli Medical Association. in their book review section and basically talking about isn't you know sort of from a criminological perspective how is it possible that people will feel afraid uh uh, you know to publish something that's scientific you know based on scientific claims using scientific evidence and interestingly and and so they got interested in looking at this more broadly and this is some phenomenon that we see and Retziff was just talking about this that the way in which many papers that are uh, raise uh, safety concerns about vaccines are, are retracted, and the there, people who raise concerns about vaccines can often be uh, yeah, face re- uh, reper- uh, negative repercussions. Um, and so, we actually started a, a research project in 2019 to look at this, and that basically involved interviewing scientists and doctors who had experienced this phenomenon. Uh, and we've had a couple of papers published out of that. So i that's how, kind of how I got interested in this. And, and ironically, um, the this review that they wrote uh, was retracted from that journal. The senior editor of that journal is um, one of the world's leading uh, immunologists and experts on autoimmune diseases, uh, Professor Schoenfeld, um, and Yuda Schoenfeld, and actually, Science Magazine wrote a whole expose about the scandal, um, castigating uh, Dr. Schoenfeld for his intransigence related to, you know, possibly raising concerns about the safety of vaccines. So that's sort of where I entered into this, and then, you know, as the COVID vaccines rolled out, I started looking at pharmacovigilance data, which was immediately very early on, which was very. Concerning, and um, and and so I wondered, well, why you know, how come I can use their methodology to find safety signals, and they're not finding any safety signals? So then we FOIA the, the the FDA. Uh, I'm sorry, the CDC to get their safety signal analyses. 2022 comes around; they finally answer us, and it turns out they didn't do their analysis. They didn't do their pro- the promised safety signal analysis that they were going to do of their own very own pharmacovigilance system which is shocking in and of itself and then it turns out that later after we after they told us they didn't do it they started doing it and uh end of 2022 comes around we finally get access to that and it turns out they did they found hundreds of safety signals most of them stronger than the signal they have for myoc they found for myocarditis and yet it's never been in the news the cdc has never announced it publicly And uh, it's a real scandal. Anyway, but that's not what we're here to talk about.
0: No, that is a, it's actually a really interesting topic because, I mean, the CDC has been, you know, really behind on reporting safety uh, signals to the public. And and I know that because I um, was the lead author on a study about um, the myocarditis and, you know, post-vaccination myocarditis in adolescents. And, you know, we came out with a much more reasonable estimate of, um, you know, how often it occurs in in adolescents than they had come out with in the summer of 2021, um, only to have it validated, you know, by many, you know, international databases later. And, you know, um, and so they really lagged behind on letting the public know about safety signals. Oh, yeah. And and so I'm curious, where was this public that they... (laughs) That this, this, uh, this, do you know where 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 they ended up? Public was it in their MMWR? No, no, no. No,
2: only just FOIA because I was gonna say I haven't seen it. It was got okay, it it was obtained by a FOIA request from a a journalist at the Epoch Times named Zach Stieber. So he obtained that. Uh, Okay, we we, all we have are their Excel files that from the CDC, and then you could just look at it and you can see what the. Safety signals are so. I wrote about it on my blog, uh, and um, but so it we'll, just hasn't. Uh,
3: we'll, if you send us the link, we can link to that uh, in connection okay. to the podcast announcing, okay. So yeah, yeah. Sorry, but, but that's another, a, that's a, another a uh, Epoch Times uh, article.
1: Yes, there is also an, Epoch, but but that, this is this is or, another yeah. example where where uh, you would expect that even if they did not write about this uh Josh will be able to publish this, but like uh but the you know it's only a substack at the moment or maybe a news right. news article. Uh, but but yes, I cannot yes. I cannot hold yeah I cannot hold a little bit of cynicism because I just just before we started I read a a, a new a new right. analysis, a new paper. Um uh, it's still not peer reviewed, but it's in the med archive, actually written by FDA people, um that actually um studies like four major databases of of um, health health, uh, health insurance programs, and basically detects um, myocarditis and pericarditis as signals, but also seizures uh, and co- as, as, as as a um, potential safety signal of seizures uh, among actually young young children two to five and two to four. But but the, the the most the cynical aspect is that they talk about near real time uh, surveillance, which I'm saying, oh we are 2023. The vaccine is is out there from t- early twenty twenty one. That doesn't look to me like near real time. So uh, whatever you found, it's not near real time, and uh, m- maybe that yeah. kind of uh, summarizes where we are. So, but at least yeah. it was and, published
3: and... by the FDA. Then,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, slowly, no. slowly, we are uh, uncovering the. Okay, uh, yeah. but, but, but but I think it, it it these two stories I think just tell us that, um, you know, it's almost like a. You would expect that if you rush the approval process, which we did, and maybe for good reasons in this case, right? Uh, you would actually have a far more stringent and and rapid uh, surveillance uh, system and uh, put in place. But what you got is is quite the opposite of that. Like uh, so, that's kind of striking to me.
2: Um, you know how
1: how in spite of the fact that it was very clear that we are rushing it and it's not going to go through, and it did not go through. Um, the regular timeline and the regular scrutiny uh, during the approval process, and it was approved under emergency use authorization. I think that it was an obligation to uh, put together the most stringent, rapid uh, surveillance system for safety, and we see anything but that, uh, perhaps quite um, the opposite.
3: I absolutely agree, and I think that many things could have been done during the rollout, actually, clever rollout that had permitted... Uh, unbiased comparisons of vaccinated Absolutely. and unvaccinated groups in the non-high Absolutely. risk, among non-high risk populations. Uh, we could have done step wedged rollout. We could have done even randomized uh, rollout mm-hmm. uh, to to study overall health outcomes uh, uh, among yeah, vaccinated yeah. and unvaccinated. So, th- So I agree that's a, a, a great omission, but maybe we should also take that as a stepping stone to, to move to the subject of today's talk, which is uh, among others, I think we've covered a lot of interesting subjects already, but also to talk about whether there were some oversights in the uh, approval um, uh, of the of the Pfizer vaccine in terms of how several aspects, as I understand it, most importantly, how the actual product was made, but also later a, a change in buffer, how that was uh, handled in the regulatory process. So maybe, Josh, you will...
0: Yeah, I, I just. Yeah, I was going to say like a good segue because we we're talking about the post marketing surveillance and to get into, you know, what happened with this is, you know, what we can say what the medical journals, you know, they're their own businesses, they sell a product like we can't, we actually can't really depend on the medical journals to publish unbiased information and they don't because they're actually, you know, not a, a public service. Um, whereas we count on the FDA and CDC to do that, but the FDA, you know, we we know that they're supposed to be doing post marketing surveillance. And so, a good segue to this topic is the fact that they had said, you know, you know, beyond that, they were going to do um, these the the um, post marketing surveillance on subclinical myocarditis and on the the Pfizer's pregnancy trial, like that they were also going to test the all of the the um, the the lots. With the 250 with 250 subjects who had received the process two um, vaccine, so they were going to test e- each of these 200 250 people in each of these lots, and and then they just decided that they they it wasn't necessary. They weren't going to make Pfizer do this, and so I think maybe that's that's a good segue to talk about what happened. And I think Josh, I agree with Christine. I think Josh should get into. You know exactly what happened during the trials. So to bring people up to speed, um, who maybe don't know about the process one and process two manufacturing, and then how it maybe could have been studied, but but really wasn't.
2: <laughs> okay, sure. So it's part of the vaccine development. Now here are, we're talking about the Pfizer vaccine um, only. The so it was first uh, the first vaccine product was made using um, one particular manufacturing process. It's very small scale. You get like, I don't know, 0. 0.7 milliliters per, per batch or something like that, um, which wasn't enough, of course, if you wanted to roll out the product and, and, and uh, inject it into billions of arms around the world. And so they developed simultaneously to starting the, 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 the trials, they were developing a new manufacturing process to upscale the production um of the vaccine and so the trial itself so the first the small dose the small scale is called they call it process one the upscale they call it process two the trials were run on process one um and then subsequent like in well into the trial which began in late July they said um so in early October, they introduced, they they um, revised their protocol and they said, okay, we're going to test, process two doses um, on 250 people per lot. And uh, not just people, people aged 16 to 55. So they had never intended to test this um, in an old, the older age group. Um, and they said, we're going to test the immunogenicity and the safety. We're going to do that by comparing... Those 250 people, or 250 people per lot, to some randomly selected uh, people. 250 people who got the clinical dose, the clinical doses, the process one doses. Um Can I interrupt
3: just uh, briefly, yeah, sure. just because that sounds like a, a huge commitment. Actually, it's it's kind of it didn't have any expiry date. So they basically just to see if I understood it correctly. They said we have. Vaccinated these 20 something thousand in the phase, uh, in the regulatory trials, in the phase three trials with the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine produced by process one. And now we have started uh, producing it with this process two. But we say that for each batch of the process two vaccines, we'll vaccinate 250 people in a control setting to compare with these historical phase three participants who got process one vaccines. Uh, right. I mean, just it, it, if it didn't come with any expiry date, was that going to go on forever? Or No, they didn't.
2: Yeah. So it's it's unspecified in the protocol. <laughs> they don't say how many lots. Um, They don't say how long it's going to take. It seems to be an add on to the phase three trial. So it's something that they were. And if you we have all the data now from the trial. And so we can look and see who is who got the process two doses and. And we see that there were, in fact, they only tested one lot of process two on 252 people. Um, and there are different, multiple ways that we know this. This has been uh, uh, confirmed in, by independent researchers using a different method to identify who, who got the vaccine dose, of the, the process two lots. Because the, the, one of the things that the data doesn't have is what batch did this individual, what lot was this person given? Um, that seems to be closely held. But, but j-
1: j- just to just to clarify, Christine, this was done while they were still recruiting people to the trial. So most of the people were already recruited and got process one. And on the tail of the recruitment, they decided to basically inject this uh, uh, this this new process two kind of batch. Right. They tacked the it on
2: because. Was
3: the idea was it was just during the phase three trials that they would test any subsequent yeah. lot. It wasn't like it would go on into 20. I don't think there was any
2: intention yeah. or indication. Yeah. I think uh, the regula- regulators were con- knew about this switch and they were concerned about it. And I think they did this to help ease, you know, perhaps per the request of the regulators or or something to that effect. Um so that at least they could say that it was tested. Now they now the, they told the regulators, we're starting this on October 19th. We know this through documents that were part of a leak or an email hack of the EMA. But they actually, now we know that, that they told that, now we know this through a FOIA request too. But they told the regulators that they were going to start this study on October 19th, 2020. Uh, and the data would not be ready for uh, analysis prior to the emergency authorizations that were given by many regulators around the world. They did say that we they expected to have the results in January or February, 2021. We now know, again, through a FOIA request of the MHRA that they never did that comparison study. And they actually revised their protocol in fall of 2022 to say, we didn't do this, we don't need to do this now that we've, we've the vaccine has been given to so many people and therefore we could see that it's safe, we don't need to bother with, with doing this comparison. I mean, the comparison frankly is somewhat bogus anyway, because 250 people is not a, enough of a sample to be able to test the safety of anything. And in terms of the immunogenicity, they only took, um, so immunogenicity as well, what is the antibody response? Uh, to the vaccine they only tested that on four people and they didn't they didn't look at their antibody levels before they got the vaccine they only looked for a month after the vaccine and they only found an antibody response in three of the four um who uh, all of whom were under the age of 23. I heard you
3: say this before Jess and I'm just I mean I'm so puzzled how could they vaccinate 250 people, that was a kind of comparison group that was vaccinated with this new process two vaccine and not test antibodies? That that seems to be the whole... I mean, I absolutely agree the numbers are too small right. to look at safety, but at least antibodies would be something that was straightforward, easy, cheap to measure. How Do we have well, any they, idea why they didn't test this?
2: Well, I don't think... I mean, I, I frankly, I think this study was 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 kind of shambolic to begin with it was just sort of to check a box i don't think they ever really intended it to be meaningful obviously they didn't because they never did the study that that they said they were going to do um in their, so they did do a series of comparisons between process one and process two doses they called them analytical comparisons and these are just different tests that they ran on the different um products to see how comparable they were. And one of those tests was in vitro expression of spike protein. And they found that the levels in a, you know, when they do do it in a, in a a vial, in a glass vial, you see that there's uh, a similar uh, expression of spike protein. So I guess their assumption was, well, if there is a similar expression of spike protein, there would be a similar antibody response. But in but, these but, analytical, but the, 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 sorry, go ahead.
3: In the, in these analytical tests, they also saw a number of differences, and I guess we're going to get into those also uh, in terms of the DNA <laughs> content and the right. uh, endotoxin levels, etc. But but yeah, let's uh, you yeah, had something. But, but, to but, say but, but just
1: just, just to just to underlie under, I want to underline a uh, very important fact that the emergency use authorization in which we decided to give it to billions of people throughout the world that decision was made with essentially minimal basically no clinical data from patients that 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 that, that new process was was tried on so so that that analysis was not available even the, the data was not even available even theoretically speaking uh because most of you know we just started in october 19 and the cutoff for for the EUA was was less than a month later so so the fact of the matter is that we actually approved this uh, uh product um to 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 use at scale with essentially uh, no clinical data on the uh, from the real manufacturing process and I, and I think that it's important to understand that this is Fundamentally against any regulatory standard, uh, because especially, especially because the new process too is a, a biological manufacturing process in which you actually use live cells to scale the the product, uh, and um, or you use biological cells to host cells to scale the product, and and it's known that unlike maybe traditional drugs, when it's a chemical formula. The, the level of risks that you can, or the, the, the safety issues and the efficacy issues are far more complex. And so you, you just don't do that. It's, it's, it's really, a, a, a f- has to be an inherent part of the approval process, which it wasn't here.
0: So. We learned the hard way with the Pandemrix vaccine, where they added the new adjuvant um, right before it was released. And they said that it had been studied thoroughly, but it actually was a slightly altered vaccine um, before it was rolled out to the
2: public yep. and that's then, the swine flu vaccine from 2009 exactly, exactly right so one. you know at, at least in the UK people were presumably there was a public notification that there had been that the vaccine that was tested was not the one that was being given but here there was no notification nobody yeah, knew about that, this I mean if that's uh, exactly you know,
3: right
0: but they knew I mean the knew, FDA yes. knew and Pfizer knew and the FDA even knew that there was lower um mRNA integrity and they I mean they knew enough. they knew enough to to ask for these 252 extra participants and so they they knew so Pfizer had disclosed that there was this new process that they were using right to to make the vaccines and and now we know, looking back too, that there was actually it was a 2.4 times higher rate of adverse events actually among those 250 um, who got the is is that right? I saw an analysis of that. Right. They were mild. They were mild, like side effects, mild, yeah. basically. And so we knew that they they were mild. So at least if they had done the they had done some preliminary analysis, they would have seen that. They didn't. They granted the EUA, I guess, before they before they had that that information but then so so now like but so can i just happened, interrupt again know?
3: so so there yeah. wasn't an, an analysis yeah. of the side effects of this space uh process two batch compared with process one batch is that well, something I've, have-
2: I've done it was so yeah. retz and i have done that analysis it's a, it's a little bit more, more nuanced than that but if you just so Um, I didn't, we didn't do the comparison that they anticipated, which was to take a random sample of 250 people and compare. I mean, we could do that. There are different ways you could do that in the the most basic analysis, where you just take everybody who was in the the treatment group, the treatment subjects who had gotten process one, and you compare their adverse event rate to the adverse event rate of the 250. There's an increase um, about two, two and a half times the increase. If you. Now, when they, they when they um, recruited those 252 people, they also recruited su- placebo subjects at the same time at the same sites. And if you do that comparison, you see about a similar rate of increase in, you know, the 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 process. Two subjects have about a two and uh, two two point four times the adverse event rate than the placebo subjects who were recruited there. However, in our analysis. Um, the, the one of the problems with with compare the comparison that we're making is that you know different sites at different times, uh, all of the subjects had different adverse event rates. So if you take a comparison, you know, so even the placebo subjects at those sites at that time have a higher adverse event rate than other placebo subjects at other sites at other times. So um in some versions of the analysis, um, we don't, don't need to get too deep in the weeds. Uh, we don't see with the sort of the increase in those in the sub, research in the subjects and the treatment subjects at those sites at that time is similar to the increase that the placebo subjects also got at that site at that time. Now, why are those, you know, why is why is there so much variation across sites and, and time periods and the adverse event rate reporting? This is a really interesting question.
3: I think the cleanest comparison. Yeah, you did publish this. We can link to that as well.
2: Um, no, I actually haven't. We haven't published it. Um,
0: there was an analysis done on Daily Clout that that we could link to, and I you could link to that.
2: That's the one that does the comparison between, and that's the cleanest comparison is you take the same sites at the same time, you look at the, the placebo subjects that they recruited at the same time that they were recruiting those 250 to Treatment subjects. That's the cleanest comparison. Now, I think that if you were to dig into that, you might you might say, well, a lot of these adverse events that are being reported by the treatment subjects at that time seem to be could be called you know uh, reactogenicity, um, which we all know there's uh, there's a very reactogenic um, vaccine. So you know, I mean, there may be different ways you could try to dismiss that. I think what you can't really dismiss are some of the very clear safety signals that emerged after the clinical trials um, that didn't see in the clinical trials at all. And that can, in many, you know, mechanistically be connected to the process two uh, manufacturing method. Um, So one of the clearest ones is lymphadenopathy, okay? Swollen lymph nodes. In the trials, process one, process two, the the rate, of lymphadenopathy was about 0.4%, okay? Um, later, when they trialed the uh, booster using process two doses, as far as we know, the lymphaden- lymphadenopathy rate shot up to about 5%. So you have like this, this huge jump. And one of the, th- you know, one, one, you might say, well, that's because it's it's the booster dose and not the f- first dose, but we, we actually know from very careful pet uh, imaging studies in done in Israel um, that there was no increase in the lymphadenopathy rate, and this is very carefully measured, right? Um, no increase in, in lymphadenopathy from doses one and two to dose three, right, the first booster. So it, it's not a result of a booster. It's a result, um, I would argue, of this switch from process one to process two, Um so that's one very clear signal. Another very clear signal, in my opinion, is that is the menstruation problems and the vaginal bleeding that we are seeing now. This this emerged very early on, right? Many many women reported this, and initially it was dismissed as being due to stress or you know women being hysterical or whatever. Um, I say that tongue in cheek. Um, I mean, I don't think they're hysterical, but that was kind of the the zeitgeist at the time. Um, mm-hmm or, you know, but, you know, okay, we should study it further. Well, we know now, I mean, there was just a publication in Science Advances looking at this, showing that uh, women that don't normally menstruate, mainly because they're on some kind of contraception, about 7% uh, of premenopausal women experience vaginal bleeding within a month after vaccination from the covid mrna vaccine Actually, i don't know if it was just mrna yeah no i think it was a pfizer vaccine specifically had this rate of 7% mm-hmm. and um so what now what was the rate of you know reported in the trial uh it was 0.7% and that's again pre you know premenopausal women um so how do you go how do you go from 0.7% to 7% well uh, it, either you're doing a terrible job of tracking adverse events, in which case the whole, you know, trial, the uh, validity of the whole trial is in question, or it's because you've introduced this a totally different product. And we can talk about the different mechanisms that might trigger menstrual bleeding. So that's another one. And I would argue and anaphylaxis the, is another one. But.
1: And the important, I just want to highlight one important aspect in what just saying that the, the rates of these new uh, newly discovered, Adverse events, the, the the observed rates in in practice are are high enough that you should have expected to see a significant signal in in twenty thousand people. So it's not like one in, you know, one hundred thousand that you can say, okay, I, I ran the trial and I couldn't see it. Like seven percent, you, you expect to see something that is more than point seven percent in a in a twenty thousand. uh yeah. so- um, So just to sum up, we have this situation where we have a lot of
3: indications that that something important may have changed from process one batches to process two batches in terms of their uh, adverse events. And uh, that is due to the differences between the 250 people, a very small number that was investigated as part of the phase three trial, but it's also because we see a different rate of these side effects uh, post-marketing than what was seen in the phase three right. uh, trials, which of course just, all of, yeah. uh, of this is subject to criticism. If you don't like the results, which will be about, well, uh, incre- increased awareness and uh, things happen. There are a lot of uh, things that can be explained as coincidences, which I think we also touched upon early on that we're just having so many coincidences. So it's really, it's getting <laughs> somewhat hard to, yeah, but, to maintain but, but that the,
1: the, the other point though, I, I think it's very important to to emphasize this. The, the, the honor, honors of proof of the burden of proof is on the regulatory agency
3: Absolutely. And, uh,
1: we, we, we talked about his, we talked about history a little bit, but this whole issue around the manufacturing process being a major aspect of the regulatory process and the approval emerged after the Qatar incident where basically the polio vaccines. Uh, exactly same scenario, by the way, uh, were tried in a major, like huge trial, but the manufacturing process was highly controlled and like, and then they were were trying to scale it and they didn't do it right, uh, and they used different, you know, somewhat different process, and and they ended up uh, infecting, um, you know, many many children with polio because they 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 did not make sure that the 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 polio um, uh, virus in the in the in the vaccines was actually dead as it was supposed to kill as, as it's supposed to to be so i think that people need to understand this is not just like um, something minor that they kind of uh, a, a small corner that they kind of rounded this is uh, this is going against fundamental uh, based on hard lessons from safety major safety incidents that we had had in the past uh, and, and and to some extent, we suddenly ignored everything we know. And and again, as you said, like now you have to suddenly prove that something is unsafe.
3: Yes, which is, and I think you know, that's not you, more... you. You talk about the bias that might be with with regulators and and uh, health authorities in general who who were promoting the vaccines. But it leaves this vacuum, which I think is is uh, I came to think about when you talked about it. Just that now, an independent researcher from from Israel is now trying to to pull this data out and do a decent analysis. And your job is so difficult. And I don't think I, I think the general public maybe sometimes perceive that we can all access this data. And why can't we just study this if the regulators don't do? But but the problem is that those who have the good data are the regulators, and they're the ones who should do their job. And it's, right. it's it's extremely difficult to come in from the side and get access to the data if at all possible and also your ability to do these comparisons as you talked about just are hampered by the fact that you don't have the full data set and we could do so much more as researchers if we had access to all this data and actually really in in real time uh, at the same time as the regulatory bodies could be analyzing and chipping in with our uh, analysis and if we thought that there's some something wasn't covered well by by regulators i think that would make for a much more safe system uh, because it's really a strange process now yes. that we are in this situation where you have to 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 sit there and do the best you can and i think you have done that right. with the available data but your your hands are somewhat tied by the fact that you don't have the full access
2: and this is a very uh, unusual circumstance that we even have access to the data that we do right because this was brought about as a part of a court action against the FDA where they were to, the, the FDA didn't want to give this data through a regular FOIA request. So they had to go and and, and basically sue the FDA for this data. They wanted to, to give it out, you know, they wanted to kind of trickle it out over the course of 75 years. Um, thankfully, the judge in, in, interceded and forced them to release it earlier. Um, but um, yeah, it's it would be great if we had access to the data, um, you know, on an on ongoing regular basis, there's kind of no reason why not. Um, one thing that's interesting um, is that, I mean, another part of this is that the regulators rely on the manufacturer to provide them with all of this stuff, right? All of the data, all of the comparisons and all of the assays and tests that are chosen to do these measurements and their problems with that Um uh, are chosen and you know by the by the manufacturer to kind of present the best picture that they can, and and, and it was never confirmed by the FDA. They didn't do their own independent testing.
1: Yeah. So maybe I mean, we the should point, move the on, point, Christine. Christine, the point you made, I think, is relevant not only to this vaccine. It's it's. I think it's a much more general principle that we should seek to right, like that that there will be a uh, transparency that allow the scientific community to. Do the research and and see right. you know if they see something that their regulatory no agency did not that
0: see. they shouldn't want people to right. have access to that if they what they really care about is like the safety and efficacy and having accurate results they should want more people to be able to analyze it to help right but and and I I have to bring up something else that's that's like uh, I've been thinking about um as we've been talking is that we do have more data than we've been discussing and I don't know if you've looked into this Josh but. I mean, we have the trials in the adolescents and we have the trials in the, in the five to 11 year olds and the under five year olds beyond that of the booster. So those would have all been processed too. And so we.
2: Presumably. Well, no, the adolescent trial used both uh, process one and process two. There was actually only one site uh, in the trial that used process two. No, that's not true, but. One site that we know of that used process two doses. Um, we don't have the full data on that um, because uh, it hasn't been fully. It hasn't. It's just starting to be released now.
0: So that was, so the other ones were processed two, but the adolescents it was like only partially processed two, and so we could get some answers from that if we had the data in terms of looking at, at safety. But it's so small.
3: We are um, looking into the phase three trials right now, and uh, and yes. uh, summarizing in a review we'll be submitting just in a few weeks uh, about uh, the differences in, in adverse events after in, in the different age groups. And I think we see a very strong trend with age, which is probably linked to the dose because they, lever, they lower the dose of mRNA in yep. the vaccines in the younger age groups. So that comparison is. It's already
1: right. Explosive. It is yeah.
0: problematic. Yep, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, the right. twelve to
1: fifteen. The twelve to fifteen is still at the third minimum. so that might be, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we could use but, the twelve but, to fifteen. Yeah. The other thing. Yeah. The other You'd thing that I think is uh, the, the other thing I think is is uh, interesting here that um, you know the, the the I'm actually not sure that there is only process one and process two period i actually suspect that there could have been also modifications to process two at least we know at least on one of them they when they changed the adjuvant as well like they added so i actually think that there is a broader and deeper lack of transparency about the changes in the manufacturing process and how they evolved over time and 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 yeah, So and I'm, I'm, good, not, I'm not sure. It's just process right. one versus process two. Period. Yeah, right and,
2: and a good a good indication of that is from a Pfizer clinical trial report where they showed that, that there was a higher adverse event rate, serious adverse event rate, an adverse event rate of special interest um, in the placebo group that crossed over and got vaccinated, which was by the at the time of the report was almost like it was over eighty percent of them and um and they wrote in their in the report it was as expected it's higher and then the and then the question is well why why are you expecting that to be higher we know that you know there seems to be some indication of the differences in some of the lots that were sent to the trial sites at the period when they would have been giving these doses to the placebo group again we can't the data doesn't allow us to exactly identify which lots were given to which people, except for that 252, we can, we can identify those. Um, But it, but it, but, you know, it raises big question. We, we published a rapid response in the British medical journal uh, pointing to this issue of, you know, we don't know how the variability in manufacturing processes affects the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. It's very understudied. And this is information that the, you know the company is is holding very close to its to its chest uh um, and I think very a lot of us okay yeah. can I give you an example I'll give you an yeah. example okay we know that the the trial you know Maddie de so Maddie de was a 12 year old girl who was in the trial and um she suffered horrible debilitating injuries that uh appear by you know any metric to be caught have, been caused by the vaccine but the manufacturer and the site investigator uh, refused to acknowledge that link. any case she was at the, the one of the sites uh, that we know that was given the process two doses that were used as part of the adolescent trial. Um, we don't know if she got the, that and then her parents have asked asked for the vaccine card right the the you know proof of vaccination and on the vaccine card there's a number that's written for the batch that was given to her, but that number is a generic number that applies to all of the batches and all of the lots. And so she hasn't been given specific information about what lot was she was given to. That's how closely this information, now all of us that went out and got vaccinated, uh, you know, if you got vaccinated, you were given a card and it was written exactly, you could identify which lot or at least which batch you were given. But she, the information she was given was was, was incomplete you know, generic. And so, it reminds
0: us even the people in the trial didn't have informed consent. You know, we talk about how, how the general public didn't have informed consent, but even the people in the trial who got processed to didn't know what they were getting. Um, and I think maybe that this is like a good time now to to talk about what exactly, uh, sorry, I think I froze there. What exactly is the is the difference that we know of in the uh, in in the components of the pro- of process too, or or how the manufacturing exactly is different, and and you know why are we worried about this? I think we should bring the listeners
3: up to speed.
2: Sure. Well, you guys just did a study, uh, uh, a podcast on the DNA uh, yep. uh contamination, right? So this is this is exactly related to that, okay? Because what what do you need to make RNA, mRNA? You need DNA. You need a template, right? And the way they did it with process one to create that. So you need a lot of DNA to make a lot of RNA. So the way they did it in process one was they basically used a PCR, which replicates uh, nucleo nucleic acids, right? DNA. So you, you put it in a PCR and it replicates this. Um, in the process two, they were, they used E. coli bacteria and they put plasmid, a uh, plasmid uh, DNA inside of the bacteria. Uh, and then they, sort of had the bacteria replicated. When the bacteria replicated, the plasmids also did. So then they have this template and then they have to basically extract that template from the, from the bacteria, try to purify it as much as possible, and then uh, use, you know, use that template to make the mRNA. And there are all kinds of additional problems and risks that are introduced when you start using E. coli bacteria. So that's really the the key and there were also some differences to the uh lipid nanoparticle uh manufacturing process as far as Pfizer has announced um so th- that's really the key the key difference and so now what we've discovered right is that there's uh large amounts of DNA fragments from the template that are still in the vaccines um And in addition, there's the membranes of the E. coli bacteria, which are called lipopolysaccharides, otherwise known as endotoxin, uh, which are highly inflammatory and highly toxic. Um, More toxic than ricin, I think, was something that I saw recently. Um, So, you know, so then the question is, well, what, how much is in it? And, um, you know, is it dangerous, right? And so if you look at the analytical comparisons that were presented to the to the regulators, uh, all of it looks like to be within regulatory limits. Now, why are those regulatory limits, you know, set at what they're set? Uh, I guess that's a, I, I don't know. I don't know the full backstory behind that. But what I do know is that this is a new technology, right? And one of the key differences is that you have this, these lipid nanoparticles where the contents of that are transfected into cells. Now, what we're interested in transfecting is the mRNA, right? But what gets into the, those, those lipid nanoparticles, you also get the DNA fragments. You also get the endotoxin. And so whatever, you know, regulatory standards were set based on a kind of regular injection or biological injection don't apply here. They can't apply, right? And there hasn't, there doesn't seem to have been any effort to update and do any real testing on, well, okay, now that we've got this new technology, how do we need to change our standards? Um, another problem is that, that, again, they let the the manufacturer decide what tests to do and, they, and to do the tests. And so the tests that were chosen for looking at the DNA contamination um, will miss small, uh, strands of DNA, okay, um, and and so they basically missed a huge proportion of how much DNA contamination was really in the vaccine. Um, so, but even
1: the, even what is detected, uh, at least for Pfizer, is above the limits, right? So I think well, so we, no, it's...
2: not in, not what the regulators, uh, not what was presented to the regulators. Well, was right
1: the external the external
2: uh, tests on it have shown um i'm not sure that what i'm not sure about that versus, i think for uh,
1: pfizer i'm pretty sure that for <laughs> pfizer at least uh, all, oh yes
2: well they're all over the limits I and mean, every vial they've tested basically has been over the limits but if you use what the method that Pfizer used you won't necessarily okay, detect okay, this okay. oh, okay, so okay. they
0: weren't necessarily detecting all the um the DNA and the and the fragmented DNA and the and the um endotoxin because they were encapsulated right so there's another both because
2: they were encapsulated both because they were encapsulated but also for the DNA because the method they were using was undercounting small fragments so there's sort and, of and i think
1: I, I think the the rationale was i think uh that What you're really worried about are long sequences, of uh, long fragments of the DNA. That's kind of more concerning because um, that could could have more meaningful transfecting um, into the cell. But but I think that major experts in the area now actually claim that potentially, actually the smaller fragments are more risky because they, they have a better chance to potentially integrate themselves into the DNA of the cell and now once that happens, now you have cells that have broken DNA or, or or malfunctioning DNA and they replicate it. That could lead to, you know, very bad, potentially, at least theoretically speaking, it could lead to, um, you know, cancer and other uh, bad, bad, uh, you know, autoimmune uh, reactions and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that there was potentially uh, rushing to make an assumption. And I, here I will relate what to what just said that, uh, you know, when you rush a new technology and you then make also very very kind of uh, relaxed relaxed assumptions, that's not a very good recipe for safety. Let me put it this way. Uh, and again, I think that the, I think we need to distinguish between: Am I going to approve it for emergency use to high risk people? Okay, maybe yes, because you know with all. But, but am I going to map all of these uncertainties and continue to scrutinize them and check that 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 had to, had to to be done, and I don't think it was done. and that's kind of to me the biggest the biggest process level issue. I, I think there are many concerning findings, but I think one of the things that maybe is someone that looks a lot of safety and and system level safety, to me, you have to ask yourself, what is the quality of the process? Are you asking the right questions? Are you doing the right tests? are you are you having the right checks and balances? And I think when you look at this, it, it's it's very obvious that that, that was all thrown off the, out, the, out of the window. And I don't think there is any excuse for that when it comes to the low risk, uh, younger population. You may have an excuse. Okay, I had to rush for the high risk uh, population, but even then you, you had to do that with full transparency and sort of really have an informed consent that is very transparent. And unfortunately, neither neither happened. It wasn't any informed consent, but also they they rushed it also for the young uh, and and ch- the young people and children, which I think it's very very um, you know wrong decision.
3: And, and, and maybe I
0: can a, um, saying that it's emergency for under twelve year olds because it's still under emergency use authorization in the U.S. and that's of course decided why one person Javier Becerra that it's still an emergency, and so it's really crazy to think that it's, it's still, you know, considered an emergency in that in that age group. And one more thing I wanted to say was the other thing that has come up as a concern is that, and in the DNA of the Pfizer vaccine, that Ontario study, they just kind of elucidated that there's the SV40 promoter, which is simian virus 40, which has been known to be like tumorogenic, the entire virus. And I don't know, I I, I don't have the expertise to say how like if it's oncogenic or can cause tumors, the promoter itself, but I know that it being there has been a concern to many people. And it's just another example of a question that we don't have an answer to and highlights, you know, the fact that we really we didn't have clinical we didn't have clinical trials. We've had all observational data since the original trials. Yeah. But yeah, you guys have things I w- to add. I, w-
2: Please. I just <laughs> want to add something to that. So so Pfizer presents their plasma template. Uh, You know, and the uh, components of it to the regular to the regulators and they have this this promoter in it and they they although they presented the the full template, they're supposed to point out what are the different elements of the template and they didn't notify any of the regulators that they had this SV40 promoter uh, in the vaccine. Um, So that's a huge regulatory lapse. What?
0: So now is Pfizer liable because they didn't disclose that?
2: People are starting to argue that, yes, it, that because there was this uh, contamination that wasn't, uh, contamination is the right word, I can't think of the right word, but uh, now because it was in there and it wasn't uh, d- disclosed to regulators, um, that yes, that Pfizer may now be sued. I don't and know it, if that's it, the case. I, I don't know. It was called, yeah. And
1: it's important, it's important to, I think, uh, underscore the fact that you know, I've been working um, in the regulatory space of manufacturing biologic drugs, uh, you know, for eight years now. And so I, I, by now I've kind of seen a lot of stuff and talked to a lot of people in the industry. Any one of these things would be immediate stop. <laughs> like, like, if you have a contamination of that level and magnitude in your product, impurity, like, that's that. Just like you stop everything, and you need to scrutinize the, the the manufacturing process, and you need to really show that you either that you are able to to, to remove that impurity. Uh, it, it's clearly it's clearly violating any limits that the regulatory agency did. So either the agency has to explain why these regulatory limits don't apply here, or they just simply have to stop. And what we see is quite the opposite of that, right? We we, we see that they continue to push this through. Uh, including to young people, yes. including to babies. And and that's yes. like, it's like- Is a, it because it's a until-
0: militarized process? Like, and it's not, hasn't been the standard process because it was an emergency? Like, that's what uh- I'm trying to figure out how much we need to worry about this for future- Vaccines. I think I'm, we should.
1: We have to, we worry, have to worry about it.
0: this
2: yeah. uh... well. I mean, you know, the, the, the notion of regulatory capture is a standard concept in political science. It's not new, it's not conspiracy theory, right? The idea that regulators come to kind of serve the interests that they're supposed to be regulating, um, you know, hurting the regulatory uh, duties, uh, is 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 commonplace, right? It's not an old thing. So you combine that with what Retziff was saying, where they're basically cheerleading this and 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 requiring people to to take it in order to you know keep their jobs and all this stuff. And then it turns out that they did a terrible job. They're the last thing they want to do is admit admit their mistakes. It's interesting though because uh, until now all the regulatory agencies have ignored this issue of the DNA contamination until I believe this last week when the regulator in Canada acknowledged that there was this contamination, They, or at least they acknowledged the SV40 uh, promoter, but they said um, it's business as usual, they, it didn't matter. And the, the, Nothing to worry it, about, it's safe and effective. Nothing to worry about. When so, did they
0: learn about it, though? That's the question. Does anyone have the answer to that question?
2: So
1: this is the problem, this is the problem. I think, I think we, we've been discussing, okay, what would you want to do, right? Okay, one of the risks, for example, the theoretical risk that it's not completely theoretical, if I would say, because we've seen that in in vitro uh, and in other contexts of DNA based um, uh, treatments, that you can really have an integration of fragments of DNA into the, 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 the DNA of the cell. Right now, you know, one natural idea would be hey, take people that, especially people that were harmed from the vaccine, and test their cells, t- 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 take people that maybe develop cancer shortly after the vaccine and, and test their cells. But this is something doable uh, that you would expect that uh, it will be initiated by the government and, and, and at the very least allocate funding to, to do that. I think that, uh, I suspect that if someone will try to do this re- type of research, t- t- well, first of all, logistically, it's not obvious, right? Like you need to have access to patients. You need an IRB you need funding, I think that the chances, and of course, later on, you, the scrutiny that you will get if you find something, it's like, it's almost like creating an environment that has all the incentives not to touch it for, for, for most researchers because they can just, what did they have to gain here other than, so so I think that this is a striking another striking example of how we actually live in a world where not only there is no transparency, not only that the regulatory regulatory agencies do not do their job, but in fact there there is an environment where people are, are you know the, the research community scientific community is basically implicitly and explicitly are being sent the message you know just don't don't ask questions move on right uh, well there's uh, and, and there are
2: huge there are huge costs you know based on the research that we did you know there's huge costs to researchers who try to raise Uh, concerns about the risk of vaccines and and one of you, Christine, probably are familiar with (laughs) with that as well as anybody. Um, But uh, the other thing is that regulators and people, you know, agencies like the CDC are very hesitant to acknowledge risks of vaccines because they're worried. Like, so, for example, if now they discover that there's this problem and they admit that there's this problem, there's a broader concern that it will hurt people's confidence in vaccines more broadly. And this idea of guarding against doing anything to guard against vaccine hesitancy is a very—I mean—I can understand the logic behind it, but I—but but it—but it, but I think that this it it come it's come at such a huge cost to to protect the vaccine program to guard against vaccine hesitancy by really repressing and rejecting, um, you know, scientific evidence of vaccine harms um is 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 a problematic attitude and 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 especially now that they're trying to you know they want to create a whole bunch of new vaccines based on this technology and wait wait a second now we if we if we acknowledge this problem it doesn't it's not just about the COVID vaccines about all of these covid vaccines and there's billions of dollars that's been invested into this technology and so there are huge vested interests that you know in maintaining the 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 legitimacy of the mRNA platform,
1: but but empirically, actually, we see the 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 opposite reaction of what they're trying to to prevent. In fact, we see vaccine hesitancy is increasing because of the lack yes. of transparency in Israel. Yes, by the way, in Israel is a striking example. I don't know if you're aware of that. So Israel doesn't have a vaccine mandates, and typically for traditional vaccines, the adherence rate was north of 90% and often actually north of 95, sometimes 98%. Um, I think actually the COVID-19 vaccine was the only time in Israel where we 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 had pressure. I mean, people would say it wasn't a pure mandate, but for many workplaces, it was a mandate, and it was like green passports and and things like that. But the first two doses, the the adherence rate was eighty six percent, eighty you know close to ninety. Definitely the the high risk population. And the booster, it 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 went down to fifty percent. And then the more and more boosters, it's it just like really at the level of of fraction of percentages. But now we also see. A um, redu- uh, dec- decrease in the adherence to other vaccines. Um, so I think I think that what they are accomplishing is exactly the opposite of what they uh, are trying to prevent. They they, they are just uh, actually I, I think they open they opened a, a can of worms because now people are asking questions about all vaccines because they, once you saw a bad example, I can tell you personally, I I never doubted. Any vaccine. I took all the vaccines. I gave all my kids all the vaccines. Um, it's much more similar to the U.S. schedule. Um, I took the two first uh, Moderna doses. I personally as a sci- scientist. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not accepting anything now. I'm just saying I want to see it in my own eyes and scrutinize this. And you, once you start to do that, you see some strange things, like why a baby a day one should get a, a hepatitis B, vaccine. like it doesn't make any whatsoever. Like, or oh, why would a baby get like eight vaccines on the same day? Like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And um, I think that they have to change course because I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to address that with saying, hell oh, safe and effective. Safe, this doesn't work anymore. I, I, I don't think it's going to work. And uh, I, I wish because I think that the damage is not going to stay for vaccines. I think that fundamentally we are hurting the trust between medical professionals and their patients because patients cannot, by the way, I think that many doctors are not even aware of, of all of this stuff. You will be shocked. I talked with some physicians that I actually consider very good physicians, including my own personal one. And when I start to say, hey, "You know that there is myocarditis, yeah, but you know all of this research, and they were like, "What? Like uh, uh, and they asked to see actually to to their credit, they asked to see, but but I think that this is not going to stop. And I think uh, regulatory agencies, if they don't switch their kind of uh, flip the 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 record and like change their mindset and their approach, I think they're going to face an increasing problem here. Uh, it's not going to go away, in my opinion.
3: I, I hope you're, you're right that things will change but, but for the, the time being i think we are stuck in with a system where it's the manufacturers and regulators who have the access to the data and, and can analyze it and they s- they sit on it so independent researchers can't get access and we, we also, also touched upon all the biases that are against, against. uh I'm, i mean i'm really happy now i have a, a postdoc who has entered into, into the field of looking, looking at the effect of covid19 vaccines to danish children on overall health because I. I know, I know many, many people, people will, be will be discouraged, many young medical doctors will be discouraged, will be discouraged from, from entering this area of at all just opening data sets to look for um, for, for effects of vaccines because, because you know, you face so much adversity, or, or you might face, by face a lot of adversity if you, if you come out, out with results, results that aren't uh, just in line with what, what was anticipated. anticipated. So, we so we have all these uh, biases. At the same time, we have the situation where you guys have just uncovered that we have. Major, major uh, a major problem that we are now vaccinating, vaccinating people with a vaccine that was never scrutinized in the, in the way it should have been because we are vaccinating with process two vaccines that were never under investigation in the phase three trials. Christine,
0: your and... your uh, your microphone is echoing. Do you guys hear that too, or is that just ah, me?
1: Yes, uh, yeah, okay. I do hear.
0: Yeah, okay. Because I could tell RETS have heard it too. I was like, uh oh, it's like a double double of your voice. Okay. But I want you to yeah, continue.
1: I how that
2: happened? <laughs> it might be something to do with your connection.
0: Oh, maybe I'm you sorry. have it on no. open in okay. two places. Is, is it, it better, better
2: now? No. No. I don't. no. I'm, you I'm, might consider disconnecting and reconnecting to the stream. It might help, maybe. Um, Since I'm doing the recording,
3: recording, I don't I think that is, is so good. good. Uh, so oh, just, right. Uh, well, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll stay, stay silent, silent and let you guys do, guys do the talking. talking. You were saying great oh, no. but, stuff I, anyway. <laughs> but but, but, but I, if you, if you understand, understand one question, then that would be where, where what where, where, where do you go, go from now? How can, can we get move on in the current, current situation, situation? To to, to answer, answer that question, that, that I know listeners will have, how can, can we get more information about process two and the risk associated
2: with DNA contamination and introduction and so on. Great question. Um, um, i I think I, I feel like we're not going to make any headway with the regulators. Um, I've just seen such um, really atrocious behavior on their on their part, on so many levels, um, many stories. Anyway, I think maybe one way forward is is legal. You know. Uh, legal proceedings now hopefully the, this revelation about the sv40 promoter will crack things open and there are many many legal cases moving forward in various jurisdictions around the world I and mean, people point to legal protections in the U.S that make it nearly impossible to sue the manufacturers and although they were given indemnity in other locations the, the laws are different and the protections are different and so you know if we can crack crack the legal barrier, and get uh, discovery because a lot of the data that we would want is not part of the the release that was made of the of the data. Um, I think that you know, hopefully, legal uh, liability and um, the transparency that comes with uh, legal cases will hopefully provide us with a a good you know way to whack whack at them.
1: My sense, well, a few thoughts about this. So first, uh, I think that um, I I suspect that in the U.S., if we want to do research like that, we will need to find some private people or organizations that will put this budget, uh, the the funding to do that. Um, I, I actually am more hopeful that, this type of research will emerge from actually the Scandinavian uh, countries, if I may say, because I think that so far they've been relative speaking, at least relatively speaking, more open and more kind of allowing um, the research to be done. Um, But but there is another approach that potentially um, can be a first step. Uh, So one of the challenges here is that, okay, to do large scale uh, or just even if you have the funding just you need an IRB and like IRB is being controlled by universities and academic institutions and other hospital systems that potentially are part of the problem um, but I wonder if someone will develop uh, some diagnostic diagnostic uh, kit that can be available commercially and then people that were harmed can apply and just test themselves right and if we if they if they find that there were, uh, they were th- th- there is an impact, they may be able to then use that in the public domain or legal level. Now, it's not completely obvious how you do that, but I think that there are potentially some legal paths to to be able to do that. Uh, which, I mean, it's not clear yet if it's a viable way uh, forward or not. Uh, I think Josh and I have heard the uh, different uh, opinions about that, but uh, right, but but uh, well, yeah, but, but okay. might be something to consider.
2: So. Two, two, two responses to that. One is that um, they are developing a kit. They are developing a, a, a test. Uh, they, meaning uh, Kevin McKernan, who first discovered this and many, some of the people that he's been working with. So hopefully that'll be available soon. And the other is that there is now a, uh, the Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge um, run by James Lyons-Weiler has started an independent IRB body. I'm actually a member of it. And that's going <clears throat> going to get certification soon. And then that would uh, create a pathway for people to get the IRB approval for these types of studies. Yeah,
1: that's um, great. I, I think we need to keep pushing forward uh, because, uh, frank speaking, I, I think that if you are uh, for medicine and if you are for vaccines, as at least, you know, I think we all believe that there are some vaccines that are doing good uh, have good outcomes I think that if you actually uh, are in favor of, of, of medicine and and, and vaccine and, and specifically you have to actually be at the front uh, line of, of this fight because I believe that what they are going to do if we continue in this path they're going to destroy any trust and without trust I think um, there's very little chance that uh, you're going to convince people to take uh, uh, you know in the future Definitely right. vaccines, and and the reason why vaccines are most sensitive uh, to to la- lack of trust is unlike other drugs, you you have to take vaccines when you're healthy. So like upfront, like why would I take if you think about it? Why would I take something if I'm he- healthy? That's a much less obvious uh, uh, situation. When if I have uh, let's say I got forbidden like advanced cancer and like you know you offer me now you either die or you try this drug. Okay, you know probably much more uh, convincing uh, uh, proposition, but like vaccines we give to yeah not only to healthy people, to y- young uh, often young and children, uh, young young people generally children, but, uh, you know, why would someone want to take the risk on that unless they are absolutely sure that not only there was a lot of scrutiny to even approve that, but also a lot of scrutiny going forward to make sure that if something is wrong, uh, we stop it and, and at least address that. So I just think that we need to um, be on the front line if we really care about medicine on, on trying to make sure that uh, we, we are taking a different path.
0: I totally agree with that, Ratsef. I just want to say, I think the way forward too is is beyond legal action, which I, I know that's, that's necessary. That needs to be part of the process as independent researchers really probably needing to create a network, you know, multiple networks with each other about where there's funding, which universities are kind of leading the way and supporting this sort of research. And, um, you know, and and so the more people, the more momentum that there is with you know um creating you know independent research and 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 asking for transparency and and doing validating other you know groups findings and the the less fringe it is the you know the less we appear to be like the anti vaxxers but more like the pro science you know people and the um actually pro you know pro safety
2: health pro
0: safety um group then i think the more traction the movement gets you know then there'll be a real challenge to our regulatory agencies because the public is going to be turning to independent scientists as they have been doing to get information that they can trust. And, you know, right now, I mean, it's, we're in a tough situation because scientists are like losing their jobs. They can't get funding. They're, you know, being publicly humiliated and called all sorts of names, but You know, I think it's kind of up to all of us and also the people who are at universities and heads of universities to say, you know, this isn't how science works. Science works by, you know, allowing differing voices to, you know, have have a say and to, to allow questions to be asked and the studies to be done. And but speaking as someone who's worked in the U.S. and Denmark, I mean, getting private funding in Denmark for research, I thought was a lot easier. It's sort of more built into the system. Whereas in the U.S., so much of the medical funding is, is based on NIH. Yeah, Christine's not so sure. I don't know. About half my Ph.D. was private funding and half was um, public. But um, And so I know it's possible to get public. I mean, to get There's private. In- it's different
1: possible and easy. I think that what Christine is saying. It's maybe right, not yeah. as hard as getting
2: it.
0: A- probably depends on what you're studying, actually. But, yeah.
2: And how much money you need. Yep. Funding a Ph.D. student is different than a...
0: Well, you know, I had, uh, yeah, I, 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 I guess I raised a, almost a million dollars because I ran okay. a very large study and um, I deployed six other people. So, yeah. Okay. All right. All right.
2: I give it to yeah. you. All right. <laughs> okay. Let's so, go.
3: can you hear me now, or am I still,
2: still echoing? A little You're bit still echoing, but we fine. we can. I mean, you, we can understand you as just a little, yeah. okay. a little off. Well, anyway I, anyway, I just wanted, wanted to, hand to hand over to, to Tracy, Tracy, maybe to
3: wrap up, since we've been talking for one and, one and a half hour, hour now. I think, we, yeah, uh, I think we've touched, touched a lot of ground. ground. I'm I'm thrilled I'm by this discussion. discussion. I think it's, it's it's great to be with, with you, and and, and I've, I'm yeah, yeah I just, just felt like, like tapping, tapping all the way, the way through uh, about the things you have said and and how yeah how we are all. In, in, favor in favor of vaccine, vaccine safety, safety yeah. and that is uh, achieved by presenting the public with uh, data and uh, and tr- being transparent about it. That is really how we, we build trust in vaccines and belonging. So I, I think you're, you, we touched upon very important things, things, and, things and, and also some, some things we can't solve right now, which is about how do we move on. We, we don't, don't know the clinical, clinical implications, implications of the process, process too yet, yet, but we need, need to, to move on, on to understand, understand better what it implies clinically and we need to find that path to to, to do so. so. And I was encouraged to hear that, that there are tests underway. We, we are also right now in Denmark looking into how to, to, to do a good, good uh, investigative immunological program for people both with long COVID and also with vaccine, with complex diseases, and multiple organ diseases after vaccination. There are many similarities and I think we, we need to investigate more about the immunological pathways to, to be able to come up with good diagnostics, but also, also good treatments, and in the future, future to be able to prevent, prevent vaccine adverse events, events clearly. Um,
2: but anyway, Tracy, I, I'll leave it to you to, to wrap up, or maybe ask your final questions, questions. and yes, hear if you have final comments, uh,
3: Josh and Brett. It's, it's been, been so great too. to hear from you.
1: Yeah. I no, thank yeah. you for inviting us. So it was very yeah, a pleasure you. and interesting.
0: Yeah, it was a great conversation. Just really appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, answer our questions. So I think we'll
3: leave it at that.
1: Enjoy the weekend, everybody, the rest of the weekend. (laughs) Take care.